Good morning. Please stand for the reading of scripture from Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are blessed today to have a dear friend and brother and partner in pastoral ministry, Andrew Rogers, come bring God's word to us today. Andrew has been in the pastorate for over 20 years. Uh, most recently, he's been on the pastoral team at College Park Church. And uh, Andrew is ordained in the EFCA, and that's how we've gotten to know each other through our every other month uh, pastoral fellowship lunches uh, of our area pastoral group. Uh, Andrew and his wife Jenny have been married for 23 years, and they have four kids. Uh, Andrew has just recently left College Park to join the faculty of Southern Seminary and Boyce College, where he'll be leading the biblical counseling department. Uh, so Andrew and his family are in the middle of uh, moving to Louisville. Uh, I think you, you guys are living out of a hotel right now, and so you've got nothing else going on. And uh, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to come and uh, bless us as you help lead us in worship and in the word. Andrew, would you uh, come? We're glad to have you. Thank you, brother. Well, good morning. <clears throat> it is a privilege, it's a blessing to be here with you. Um, I uh, owe my entire life, actually, to the E.B. Free Church. I went to a free church in Visalia, California as a non-believer in high school, and uh, one year later, I was a believer. And, uh, and then a few years after that, I was a, started my pastor, uh, pastoral career there. And uh, actually, College Park was the first non-EV free church uh, that uh, I ever served in. And so I'm indebted to the ministry of the free church and to the pastors uh, within, uh, and even in particular to Jeff and to Tom, as I've gotten to know them over the years, being here for the last five years. You guys are really well cared for. Um, these men have tender hearts, uh, gentle spirits, they love the Lord, they love you. Um, I have listened to their prayers, not to evaluate them, but uh, I've heard their hearts as they've cried out to the Lord, uh, petitioning the Lord uh, for you, uh, for their families, for their own walk with the Lord. So, I uh, <clears throat> just want to let you know, be encouraged, uh, you have great shepherds uh, in your midst. Um, we are in Psalm 13, and, um, and before we get into looking at what Psalm 13 teaches us, and in particular, what does it teach us about giving voice to our grief, uh, if you would, please join me in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we thank you so much uh, for the privilege of being able to call you Father. Uh, we recognize that is indeed a privilege that is something that's uh, given to us as a gift it's not of ourselves, it's, it's nothing we've earned, it's nothing that we have deserved, but it solely comes to us by you, loving and caring, tender-hearted and compassionate Lord. 
We're grateful that you have given us the gospel message, that you have um, proclaimed to us the good news, that there is salvation for our souls, that indeed we are sinners, we are indeed separated from you, we indeed deserve your just wrath and punishment for if we have disobeyed any part of the law, we've disobeyed the whole thing. But it is by your grace that you would give us a Savior through your Son, Jesus Christ, and in Him we put our trust, and in Him we put our hope. And we thank you that in Him we are adopted as sons, as children of God, that we might indeed cry, Abba, Father. We thank you, Father, for that identity, for that life, for that great inheritance that someday all of the trouble and the trials that we endure in this lifetime will indeed come to an end. We will stand in your presence, you will stand in ours, and it will be a glorious day. Father, we look forward to that day. Indeed, we do cry out, come, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, come. We ask that you would help us to understand your word this morning, just that our affection and worship for you would become more intense, more vibrant, more impassionate, that, Father, our knowledge of you would be more biblical, and that the life that we live would be more godly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> well, I got to Indiana by way of Florida, and when we first moved to Florida, we noticed one thing, there are no mountains. No mountains in Indiana either. We'd grown up in California, and that's all we knew. We knew mountains all our lives. We knew how to get up and down the mountains. We knew how to hike the mountains. We knew what to do in the mountains. We knew that the mountains were an incredible way to escape the blistering heat of the Central Valley. And so it was really an odd moment of my life when we sat down to lunch with some folks from Florida when we first moved there. And one of the gentlemen that we had sat down to lunch with asked this question. Now again, I know we have the saying, there's no such thing as a dumb question. I have to admit, though, I thought this was a dumb question. This is what he asked. He said, so how do you get to the mountains? Really? It just seemed like not a smart question. But again, it, what I failed to recognize is this is a person who never knew mountains, didn't know anything about a mountain. He said, do you just, do you, I mean, how do you get there? And I said, well, will you drive? <laughs> or, I mean, you just go straight up? And I, no, 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 no. There's windy roads. You just kind of go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth until you're there. Oh, okay. Now, what stands out to me is, is the point was is that I, growing up in that and being familiar with that, I, I knew how to get from the valley floor unto the peaks of the mountain. But a person who just had no clue of that experience of being on a mountain just had no idea of how would you get from the valley up to the mountain. And that is true for a lot of us when it comes to the issue of grief and sorrow and pain. We know grief, and we know sorrow, and we know pain. We, we know what, you, what I would call the gully of gloom. We know that. But we read in Scripture, we read about peace, and we read about love, and we read about joy, and we read about hope, and we read in Philippians about peace that surpasses all understanding, and we hear testimonies of people being at peace, and we hear peace, 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 and people experiencing joy, and we read the Psalms, and we see the psalmist saying, I praise God, and I rejoice, and we think to ourselves, I don't have that experience. I don't know what that's like. It seems that all I know about my life is this gully of gloom. 
I'm very well acquainted with grief. I'm very well acquainted with sorrow. I'm very well acquainted with pain and trial. But I really don't know anything of this peace, this tranquility, this serenity that the Bible and others speak of. And David expresses for us in this psalm the gully of gloom and the summit of serenity. And he gives us the path by which to get there. He, he describes, if you will, just like what I did with that young man at lunch. He describes the path of how do you get from the valley unto the summit. How do you climb from where you are unto where you would like to be? And as we look at this psalm, there are a few things to note. Number one, David is very well acquainted with grief. The context out of which he writes this psalm, he, he understands the grief over his own sin. He understands the grief over death in his family. He understands the grief over the disloyalty of friends and of family. He understands the grief over physical pain and loneliness and even homelessness. And he understands the grief brought about by per persecution. This is a man who's very well acquainted with grief when he writes this psalm. And of all the prayers for help in the book of Psalms, Psalm 13 is the briefest. And what it is, is it fits in the category of Psalms, the Psalms of Lament, which comprise a large portion of the psalmist. The psalm is divided into three sections, ultimately just two verses each. First, we have David's complaint. The second is David's petition. And then the third is both David's confidence and praise. And I would like you to remember that form. As you look at the Lament Psalms, it, it is a practice within Christendom that is often neglected, and that is the practice of praying a lament, lamenting unto the Lord, or if you want, complaining God's way. Okay? And I just want to, there's an identifiable form within the Psalms that really help us give voice to our sorrow and to our grief and to our pain. And that is when you look at the Lament Psalms, you're going to see a typical formula. That formula is typically the idea of a complaint met with a petition and then a confidence met with praise. All right? So maybe you're familiar with ACTS, A-C-T-S, as a kind of a way to remember prayer. You know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. So what I'd like you to remember is C-P-C-P. -C -P. Okay? Got it? All right. So we think about the first one. What's the first one? Is a com complaint with a... With then confidence, we can say that confidently, yes, confidence, yes, and then lastly, praise, okay, so as we think through, if you don't listen to anything else, then remember that as you're walking through grief and your sorrow and pain, lament is such a wonderful option, it is such a God-ordained way for us to speak to God. Over our sorrow, over our grief, we issue our complaint with a petition, we boast our confidence in his character and who he is and what he does, and then we offer praise. And so what we see here, even from David, is we see him go from complaint to praise. Not with the removal of his circumstances, but just simply a transformation of his mind and the way he thinks and the way he perceives the sorrow that he is facing. And so let's get started. In the beginning, what we see here is we see described the gully of gloom. In verses 1 and 2, David says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? 
How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? There's one thing that should strike you, and that is repetition of one phrase. How long? Right? How long? How long? How long? And if that's not enough, how long? Right? And it's used four times. It's bursting out, if you will, and just expressing the fact that this is a complaint. This is a lament song. It expresses grief. That is exactly what David is experiencing. But it also mixes complaint with petition because there's a sense of when he says how long, he is complaining in the sense of just saying how long because there seems to be no end to this. Can we relate to that? See, one of the beautiful things about the lament is that to a certain extent, he leaves the the specific details about what is actually causing his sorrow, he leaves that out. There's a sense that it's purposeful on the side of the author so that anyone reading it forevermore can relate to what they're going through. Because it's not the details per se, but it's the actual experience of those details that all of us can relate to. I may have never experienced the exact details that you have, but I've experienced the result of dealing with those details. And so David has experienced that incredible feeling that comes about. And so he expresses the fact that how long? There seems to be no end. And we can relate to that. There are times where we're grieving for such a long period of time or we're we're suffering under pain or, or sorrow or torment Or trial, and it just seems like it's going on forever and ever and ever, and there's not going to be an end to it. But the how long also indicates the fact that I'm yearning for some relief. So it's both a complaint, because it seems like this is going to last forever, and then it's also a petition. I want relief from this. I mean, there's a reason why I'm saying how long. It's not because I want to continue. It's because I'd really like to not. I'd like to get off this thing. And he says, will you forget me forever? In the throes of grief, we're we're tempted to sometimes worship our relief more than our Redeemer. See, we have to be very careful that that we avoid the temptation to turn to unbiblical solutions in order to relieve our grief. So the church has often turned to the wisdom of the world and, and sometimes even Eastern mysticism and pop psychology in order to seek relief from grief. See, when we're grieving and we're experiencing the throes of this, we want that relief, and there's a point where that relief can then become an idol where we worship it more than we do the Lord. And and it gets to the point where I might even say to myself, you know, I just want this to stop no matter what. And so an advertisement comes on, hey, would you like relief from your grief? Yes! Right? And you're willing to do whatever they tell you to do. You know, buy this for $59.99 for 16 months. Okay, right? No matter the cost, because I want it so bad. And so we turn to the promises of healing. If we attend a certain event, if we have enough faith, if we just touch the TV screen, or if we give X number of dollars. And all this is done for a quick fix. Our, God, our gaze goes from God, from serving, from worshiping, from glorifying and trusting Him to just merely give me relief. And ultimately, it's a worship shift, and re- uh, relief then can quickly become an idol. 
Paul rightfully expressed it this way in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7 through 9. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. And we don't know if this thorn was a, a physical ailment or if it was a person that was tormenting him. But the point is, is that it was given and it harassed him, kept him from becoming conceited. Three times he pleaded with the Lord that he would leave this, he would take this away. But the Lord's response to him was this, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength, my sustenance, my power, my provision is sufficient for you. In other words, the answer was not, I am going to remove that from your life. That's where your relief is going to come from. No, we think sometimes removal is the relief. But what God is saying, no, no, my grace is the relief. I will give you the strength to endure this. I will give you the strength to even praise me in the midst of this. I will give you the strength and to empower you to serve others. I, I will free you up from worshiping the relief from that, and I will free you up to worship me. My grace is sufficient for you. Elsewhere, the psalmist says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Blessed is the one whose trust is the Lord. Blessed is the one who puts their trust in him. So what makes this feeling of prolonged suffering, though, even worse? In verse, the second part of verse 1 is that feeling that God has turned his back on you. Listen to what he says. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? There's a sense that David is, is saying it. It just seems as if, Lord, not only are you just not thinking about me, but you actually turned your back on me. You've kind of walked away from me. Will you forget me? Will you hide your face? This is used elsewhere in Psalm 42. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of this oppression? Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? And we need to understand that when he uses the word forgetting, he is not referring to some psychological act of having a thought pass from his consciousness or some temporary permanent lapse of memory. That's not what he's referring to. But what he is referring to is the idea of not acting or doing something about the situation. See, the lamenter, the psalmist, David... His, his doctrine of who God is is completely intact. He's still putting his trust in the sovereignty of God, for that is the, even the reason why he's even praying to him. Because if God wasn't sovereign, then why should I pray to him? If God can't do anything about it, then why should I talk to him? But he goes to him, understanding the sovereignty of God. But what he is referring to is the fact that in his sovereignty, at this moment in time, he has not turned his attention to remove that from his life. See, many of us, if I were to ask you do, you, do you believe God's sovereign? Most of you would be, yeah, I believe God's sovereign. Do you like the fact that, yeah, I like the guy's God? Most of us have no problem with the fact that God's sovereign. We just have a problem with the way he carries it out. That's typically where we have our problem, right? Yeah, you know, God, ah, I don't think I would do it that way, okay? That's typically where the rub comes, I know you are sovereign, and, that, and this is where the conflict is with the, with the psalmist and his lament, is, is I know that you are sovereign, so I know that you could turn your attention to this situation, and you could obliterate either the enemy, you could obliterate the person, you could obliterate the circumstance, you could, if you wanted, make my life 
absolutely easy and comfortable. You could do that. But right now, you're not choosing to do that. And therein lies the nature for complaint, the nature for lament. And that's where David is at. It's the idea that God is apparently not acting on his behalf. He's not responding to his need. God has somehow turned his blessing elsewhere and he's forgotten him. God is seemingly not paying attention and he's choosing not to remove this grievous situation. This can be like at times even with our children, those of you who are parents and or those of you who might be teachers with kids or, or just even a friend who's turning to you and they're grieved because you won't pay attention to them, right? Pay attention to me, right? And, 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 we, and they get concerned and, and, and we have all these different ways of responding to that. And in some ways we respond rudely, right? And sometimes we do that even with the Lord. We, we have these two extremes that we can fall on. The one extreme is that, well, you know what? I'm, I, I can't say anything to the Lord. I mean, he's God. He's the creator God. He, he's supreme above all things. I mean, who am I? I, I? I can't say any word of complaint to him. And then there's the other extreme. I shake my fists at him. I tell him what's up, right? You need to be real with God. For he can take it. And then we forget who he is. We, we forget who we're talking to. We, we forget that he's the supreme being who deserves all awe, honor, and respect. And what's so beautiful about this lament psalm is he balances both honesty and honoring. He balances being honest with the Lord about where he's at, about what he's feeling, about what he's going through. But he balances that with honoring the Lord with fear and respect for who he is. That's the beauty of biblical laments, is they give us a wonderful model by which how we can give voice to our own suffering, how we can give voice to our own grief in the midst of those trying times. So how should we respond to this feeling of being abandoned by God? How was it that he responds? Well, primarily his response was he took his complaint directly to God. God's not offended by our questions and our transparent feelings. One of the things that we need to understand, it's, it's an incredible use of this word. Um, one of the things I, I so love about the Hebrew language is that the Hebrew language paints these incredible pictures with just one word. And there's a word that's often used to describe God in relation to us, and that is that God inclines his ear to us, or God inclines his heart to us, or God inclines himself to us. And the picture that that word is supposed to portray for us is the idea of a person who cups their ears just like this and leans in to pay attention to what you have to say. That person is showing both an interest and an intense focus and also a great care. And that's the image of our Heavenly Father when it comes to crying out to Him, even if it is a complaint, to be honest with Him and transparent with Him about our grief and about our sorrow. And we have a loving Heavenly Father that if we are in Christ and we are His child and we can cry out, Abba, Father, to Him, that He listens with His ears cupped and a leaning forward type of stance. For some of us, that's all we needed to hear today. We just need to remember that our Heavenly Father is not standing far off. That our Heavenly Father is not just looking down on us and saying, I don't want to hear you. 
That is not our Heavenly Father, but our Heavenly Father is bending down to you. He's cupping his ears to you, and he wants to hear what you are going through. Why? Because he cares for you. Hebrews reminds us that we should go before the throne of grace with absolute confidence. For if we are in Christ and we are indeed his children, then we can go before the throne of grace with confidence and we can present our request to him and know that we receive mercy, which means this, that even if you're going through the grievous thing that you're going through by your own stupidity and your own fault, he's still going to listen to you. And the reason I say that is because that was an issue I struggled with early on. I was always taught if you make your bed... Lie in it. That's right. And so I understood that in my concept of my relationship with God, it meant this, that if I was experiencing the hardship I was experiencing by my own stupidity and by my own fault, then the la- I, I would not go to him. I would not talk to him. I would just say, no, no, I've got to deal with this all by myself. And when I understood the mercy of God, that even when it was as a result of my own failings that I could go before him, wow, did that free me up. You will receive mercy and you will receive grace, strength, power in your time of need. That is our Heavenly Father. There are times when we feel like we cannot control our thoughts or our emotions. David expresses that. Lord, how long must I take counsel in my soul, have sorrow in the heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? It just seems like there's no control over how I'm feeling. And and also there's a feeling of helplessness about my circumstances. The the recognition that I'm not in control of the things that are going on in my life. For many of us, this is where the grief exists. Because I want to have control. I want to have control. I want to control those people that are treating me poorly. I want to control that circumstance that's making my life so difficult. You know, the last few months we've lived here, you know, I've had to drive, I had to drive an extra five minutes every Sunday morning to church because of town, you know, because of all the road work on town, right? You know, and I had no control over it, you know? I couldn't get them to work quicker, I couldn't get them to do it any faster, right? That's where the rub happens at times. We want control. And what David is saying is, this is, this is part of my lament, this is part of my complaint. Man, I, I realize I've got no control over these situations. If you've experienced incredible tragedy in your life, one of the temp- tempting responses is to become over-controlling. Because you, never, you so much do not ever want to experience that again, that you want to try to control all your circumstances, and you're deceived into thinking that you can't. And part of the grief and part of the sorrow and part of the pain and and part of the ultimate distress and anxiety that you experience right now is simply as a result of that's how you've chosen to respond. Rather than doing what David does here. What David does here is the path from the gully of gloom to the summit of serenity is paved by the path of prayer. It's paved by the path of prayer. Prayer is one of the most undervalued, underappreciated, and underestimated privileges of being a follower of Christ. But recognize it's only those who are in Christ that even have the privilege of standing before and drawing near to the throne of grace. And that's exactly what David does here. This is the thing he asks. He asks for three things. 
He's feeling that God has turned away from him and has hidden his face. So the first thing he asks for God to do is to consider me. He says, God, consider me and answer me. Consider ultimately just means to look at or regard someone. Basically, David is saying, turn around and look at my direction. And and why is that? Because God is supreme. God is the ultimate. Who else is he going to turn to? See, we practice this principle, by the way, on a regular basis. If you were to go to a store and buy something, or you were to go to a restaurant and get a particular drink or particular food item, and it was not to your liking, what are you going to do? Most of us don't suck it up, okay? But most of us want to do something about it. Either we want to return it, okay? And, And when we return it, what do we want back? We want a refund. Now, what happens if the clerk that we're returning something to refuses to give us a refund because it seems as if their hands are tied and they're not able to do it? What do we do? Do we just walk away? No. We call for the manager. That's right. That's right. Why do we call for the manager? And you know what? We're not even satisfied there, right? No, 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 no. Who's above you? Right? Now, why do we want to do that? Because ultimately, we want to get to the person who's really in charge. Right? We want to get to the person who actually can do something about it. And if that's a CEO, fine. Give me his email. <laughs> See, that's the beauty of the lament psalm. Why is the lamenter turning to the Lord? Because ultimately, it's the Lord who can do anything about it. See, we have a wonderful practice of talking to a lot of other people. Right? We love to complain to other people. We love to complain to our spouse. We love to complain to our friend. We love to complain even to our person who cuts our hair. We love to complain anyone who will listen. You know, you're pouring gas, putting gas in your car, and there's a person right there, and you're just looking at them. You make eye contact. Oh, I just got to tell you about how bad my day is, right? (laughs) And we'll complain to all these people, and we'll just throw that burden on them, right? And guess what? They can do nothing about it. They're as helpless in solving your issue as you are. And we burden people with those things when ultimately it's the Lord that wants the burden because it's the Lord who can do something about it. And that's what gives us hope. That's what gives us hope. That's what turns our sorrow and our grief into rejoicing. Because we put our trust and our hope in the Lord because He is supreme. He is the God above all things. And we cry out to Him, give ear to my words. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction. Consider how many are my foes. I will rejoice. I'll be glad in your steadfast love. Why? Because you have seen my affliction. Look on my affliction. Deliver me. Secondly, he says, respond to me. Answer me. His feelings have told him that all is lost, that his enemy will triumph, no doubt, meaning that his enemy will eventually succeed in killing him. And he asks God, please respond to me. Answer me. And lastly, revive me. Revive me. Give me life. Revive my power to live. With eyes that are dimmed with sorrow, David cries, light up my eyes. Revive me that I might not live. And lastly, we get to the summit of serenity described in verse 5 and 6. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. No change in circumstances, but a complete change in perspective. 
The biblical complaint always is honest about the complaint, but always sees the complaint through the eyes of his theology, through the eyes of his doctrine, through the eyes of who God has revealed himself to be. And in particular, what David is putting his trust in here is God's steadfast love. Now that is absolutely one of the most precious characteristics about who God is. So I want you to understand one thing about God. This is where we go from we go to the brain hurting period, okay? God has always existed. He's never created. He's just always existed. He has no beginning. And he has no end. He is also the epitome of what free will tr truly is. He's not obligated to do anything. He's self-determined. He needs no one. He needs no one's counsel. He needs no one's strength. He needs no one's ability. He needs absolutely nothing. And so anything he does is always done through self-determination. It is never done because he's obligated to do so. The beauty about God is this. When he chooses kindness toward you, it's never, well, if I have to. It's not that. But God in his self-determining, when it says that he has steadfast love, this is a loyalty to another person. This is an extreme loyalty, and this is incredibly precious to David in the midst of his circumstances because one incredibly painful thing that he is going through during this time is the disloyalty of his friends and the disloyalty of his family. And so he puts his trust in the steadfast love of God who is ever loyal to him by self-determined choice. There was nothing in David that demanded it. There was nothing in David that deserved it. There was nothing in David that merited it. It was God's own choosing. And if you are in Christ, God has that same steadfast love toward you. It's a self-determined loyalty to always care for you and to always fulfill his promises to you. And so therein lies what brings so much joy to David's heart and why it is that, joy, that David goes from the gully of gloom to the summit of serenity. Why? Because he's chosen in the midst of his trying circumstances and in the midst of his grief, he has chosen not to focus on those things, but rather he has chosen to extend his gaze in worship to the Lord putting his trust on the steadfast love of who God is so that his heart would rejoice not in his grievous circumstances, but his heart would rejoice in his salvation and that he determines not only to trust in the steadfast love of the Lord, but he also determines that he will sing to the Lord, that he will sing praises to the Lord. Why? What's that driven by? Because God has removed those grievous circumstances because his grief is just miraculously gone away, no, no, but because God has dealt bountifully with him. He recognizes that he doesn't need proof of God dealing bountifully with him by just removing that grievous situation from him or removing that feeling of grief from him, but he knows God has dealt bountifully from him because it's revealed throughout Scripture the sad condition of our soul and exactly what God has provided as a result. And Romans 8 is so clear that in this lifetime we are going to experience trouble after trouble after trouble because it says all of creation is groaning. 
And for those of us who are in Christ, we groan a little bit more with even a little bit more intensity because the reason why we groan so much more is because we know how much better things can be. For those who don't know Christ, they don't know anything better than what it is. They still groan, but we groan with even greater intensity because we know what it can be. And we know that there is going to be the day where we stand in the presence of Jesus and Jesus stands in the presence of us and we are dominated by righteousness. That there's no sin, there's no grieving, there's no sorrow, none of it. And may I also say this, while we do need to be very careful of idolizing the relief from grief over our Redeemer, we also need to understand that we need to also at times thank God for the grief. Grief is related to our heart's desires. It's related to what we want, what we are passionate about, what we desire. And there are certain things it's just absolutely appropriate to grieve over. To grieve over the loss of someone. My family and I were in the midst of transition. We've been grieving the loss of friendships and the people that we've been serving together with and the the friendship and fellowship of serving and worshiping together with. And we, we grieve over that loss. And there's a temptation. See, if, if, I, if I idolize the relief from grief, then one of the things I might choose to respond or practice would be this, that I would never, ever develop a friendship again. I, I'm going to never get close to anybody again because it hurts when I'm not with them. And it's pure selfishness. And it's me idolizing my own comfort and my own removal of grief rather than recognizing the beauty of the grief I experience. There's a, a fun psalm that I, I still didn't figure out the address to. I, I said that in first service and then I didn't research it between. So I still don't know the address. But this, this is what I'd say. Read all of the Proverbs until you find it. Okay? Don't look it up. Just read them all until you find it. But here it is. The proverb goes like this. Where the manger is clean, there is no oxen. Now, what does that mean? It means this. If you have a clean manger, that's a good thing. You're going, yeah, I got the clean manger. My manger's clean. Okay? But what it means is you have no oxen. And now what does that mean? Well, it means you have no livelihood. You don't have an incredible resource that would allow you to till the ground and allow you to harvest the food so that you might live. That's the point. So there's a certain aspect, right? If your home is not quiet, it means you have kids, right? Rejoice that you have kids, okay? If you have a messy apartment, rejoice that you have a roommate, that you're not paying the rent all by yourself, and that you have a friend, right? Rejoice in that. Rejoice in sorrow and the grief over lost relationships. Because what does it mean? It means that God blessed you with affection for others. And he blessed you being the receiver of affection by others as well. Grief over a wayward child. Grief over a wayward friend. He just refuses to bow down before the cross of Christ. These are all incredibly appropriate. And don't ever wish those away. So when we think about grief, we're not thinking about the removal of it as much as we're just thinking, how do we respond to it in a way that's going to glorify the Lord? We get from the gully of gloom to the summit of serenity 
by the path of prayer, and in particular, the prayer of lament, where we voice our complaint and our petition, our confidence and our praise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that when we are tired and we feel alone and it just seems like a dark time in our lives and grief just seems incredibly overwhelming and in the midst of our crying, we often can wonder, just as David wondered, oh, Lord, how long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Lord, help us to remember that we have a voice for our suffering in the Psalms of Lament, that we, you give us the freedom to voice our complaint, that you want to hear our petition, but at times, Lord, we forget, though, to make that next transition, just as David did in verse 5, but I look at this complaint, I look at this trying circumstance, I look at this grief, and I put my confidence in these particular characteristics about you, O oh God. And in particular, David, the steadfast love of you, our God. Help us to rejoice. Help us to sing to you because you have dealt bountifully with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.